0: Acts chapter 2, we've been talking about the day of Pentecost, and now we're going to talk about a different day, the day of the Lord. Acts chapter 2, verse 12, we're going to be picking up. Now, by way of review, we're going through Acts verse by verse. We're in chapter 2, working through a historical record of New Testament Christianity. It's basically God recording what a bunch of fishermen and carpenters and ex-Pharisees and businessmen and businesswomen, ex-priests, ex-tax collectors, farmers, and even a doctor. What God was able to do through them, amen? That is what we're looking at in the book of Acts. We've learned about this day called the day of Pentecost. and We've studied just a bit about The gift of tongues. Um, But this morning we're going to hear Peter as he warns of a bigger day, scarier day that was coming. It's called the day of the Lord. So Acts chapter 2, pick up there in verse 12. And uh, we're going to read 12 to 14. They were all amazed. We've seen this crowd hearing 120 believers up in that upper room. Speaking in about two dozen different languages, and it says, uh, verse twelve, and they, the crowd of, I don't know, there were thousands there, maybe as many as ten thousand in the streets. They were all amazed, and they were in doubt. They didn't know what to believe, saying one to another, "What meaneth this?" And there were others. There are always those who mocking, and they said, "These men are just full of new wine." So uh, you you understand, the crowd was very confused. Uh, And uh, what is amazing, we talked about, go back to verse 6. It says, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because they heard every man speak in his own language. This was not a heavenly language. This wasn't mystical tongues. These were languages. But even if you heard two dozen people speaking in different languages, it would sound crazy to you. Somebody over here would hear it in ancient, Um, uh, goth and german somebody else in early french and early italian all these different languages arabian so on and so forth and it would sound crazy to you because maybe you only knew one language and it was hebrew and they're speaking and you go ah they're all just drunk but peter says you know this confusion this confusion is an opportunity for me to warn what's really happening and what's coming In this day and age when, have you noticed, our politicians don't know what to do. They hold on to, we got to keep masking, we got to keep this, we got to, and the science keeps coming out, we're open, we're free, it's okay. And politicians don't know what to do. You know what a Christian needs to say? I know what to do. Trust the Lord. I don't trust our politicians. I don't trust the scientists, the doctors, because they're constantly changing. Now, I like them. We pray for them. We need them. We need them to do right. But let me tell you this, in the end, a Christian should be able to stand up and say, I know what to do. I know what we need to do. We need to pray. When Paul was on a ship and it was in a storm and it was about to sink, you know what Paul said? I know what to do. We need to pray. And he told a bunch of unsaved people, gather around him. And he says, I believe God. And he gave him the gospel. Let me tell you, Peter took an opportunity to stand up and warn them of what was going on he said these men and women look down there in verse uh, 14 <clears throat> peter standing up with the 11 lifted up his voice and said unto them ye men of judea and all ye that dwell in jerusalem be this known unto you and hearken to my words for these are not drunken as ye suppose seeing it is about the third hour of the day now they were counting time from sunrise to sunset so third hour means 9 a.m he says this. Still early in the morning. There's there's no pubs open. There's nothing. There's no way that that we're even possible to be drunk. What was going on? They are full of the spirit of God. He goes on, verse uh, sixteen. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Just hold there for a second. Don't you understand the blessing of that moment, Paul. Uh, sorry, Peter is is just saying this is the fulfillment of a promise. Jesus reminded of the promise, and he's fulfilled it—the promise of the fullness of the Spirit. But that's not all that the Day of Pentecost was about. Keep reading in verse seventeen. <clears throat> um, watch there. He says it shall come to pass in the last days. Remember that. I'll pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will also, what else he says? Show wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible. Our notable day of the Lord come. Now, Just stop there for a second and realize uh, this is the very last sign. You say, what are the signs of of uh, the last days? The day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost started us on God's calendar and the clock is about to run out. There are some people who keep a clock at some, some group. Uh, I forget. It's called the doomsday clock. You ever heard of it? We're like three minutes till midnight, which means we're that close to doomsday and all this stuff. They don't realize how true they are. Because ever since the day of Pentecost, the cross started something. The day of Pentecost uh, announced that that things are in motion for the last days. We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. And it culminates, it ends with the day of the Lord. And it is a terrifying day. So... Here we heard Peter briefly quote from Joel chapter 2. Look back there in verse 16, but that, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And people say, Who is Joel? Who's this guy? Well, he was a godly man who lived in Judah and Israel about 800 years before the birth of Christ. At that time, as many times in Israel's history, They were away from God, they were living wickedly and they were unaware of just how much trouble they were in with God. God had given those commandments to them and they were breaking every one of them. As a people, they were away from God. So God told Joel to warn those people of two future judgments, not just one, but two. One of the judgments was that a nation from the north was going to come and they were gonna surround Jerusalem, and they were going to destroy the city, and and they would destroy the very temple. That was like, what? And this turned out to be Babylon. It was gonna be 200 years later. It was not gonna happen in their lifetime, but you know what's funny? Joel didn't say, oh, you've got 200 years to wait. No, he said, there is an army preparing to come, and you better get right. Now, God waited 200 years. Now that is grace. You say, wow, well, if, if Jesus was coming back today, I'd sure like to know about it. He is coming back, but he won't tell you when because he expects you to believe it for a day. So he warned them that Babylon was coming and it was God's judgment. Secondly, Joel remarks that there's another army coming, but this army's coming from heaven. And it was, and it was coming and would judge not just Israel, but would judge the whole world in the last days. And it's it's interesting that Joel one of his main subjects is the last days. The day of the judgment of this world. He calls it the day of the Lord. Everyone when When Peter began to speak of this day, everyone knew what he was talking about. It was a terrifying day. They had grown up hearing the book of Joel read in the synagogue, and they would talk about it. What is the day of the Lord? Is it a good day? Are are, are we ready for it? They grew up with all of this. Now, I want us to go back to Joel. I know we're going verse by verse through Acts, but this is an incredible book. So if you go to Matthew and go left, You'll, um, uh, you'll. I don't know if I could tell you, uh, what's the fastest way to find the book of Joel? Um, Hosea, Joel, uh, Amos, Obadiah, but Joel, you're looking for a very powerful little book, prophet. We're going to start in Joel chapter 1 and verse 14. <clears throat> I got excited studying just the book of Joel. I remember before my son Joel was born, I was wondering, what are we talking to to Nito? What are we going to call this boy? We, we, uh, I don't know if we remember. I don't know if we knew he was going to be a boy or what. But anyway, I, I was reading in my Bible, and I just finished reading Joel, and I said, let me go back, see if that's a good name. And I love the book of Joel, and so I named my first son Joel, and I'm glad I did. By the way, he named his son Jude. the the book just before revelation amen so very prophetic amen anyway you'll get that one day verse chapter 1 and verse 14 this is joel as he's speaking he's going around from city to city and village to village and he says verse 14 sanctify set apart a fast call a solemn serious assembly gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land unto the house of the lord your god and cry unto the lord alas watch what he says for the day, for the day of the Lord is right at hand, it's within reach. And as a, watch these words, a destruction from the Almighty, it shall come. Go down to chapter two in verse one. Whenever an army would, would be approaching to the city, uh, a watchman would be up on the top of a, of a wall, if the wall if the city was walled and if he saw marauders or an army coming over the hills he would sound an alarm and blow a trumpet and warn everybody close the gates get inside well that's what here now Joel begins to say blow ye the trumpet in Zion sound an alarm in my holy mountain and let all the inhabitants of the land what's the next word tremble this was supposed to terrify them why for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand, a day of, notice these characteristics, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. You ever seen a cloudy morning? But on the horizon, you see the sun just peek out of the bottom of the clouds, just on the horizon. There's a glimpse of, of sunlight. Now watch this. This is not, oh, good. It's, it's a good day. The sun's coming out. No, no, no. Look what he says. That light is not Jesus coming back. It says it is, but I want you to see it's a great army of people and a strong. This is an army on the horizon that's lit up like like light. There had not been ever the light, neither shall there be, shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them. Oh, it's lush. And behind them is left a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses. And as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountains? Shall they? Now, when do chariots ever jump from mountain to mountain? So this is not a normal army. Keeps going. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, and a strong people set in battle array. So there's an army coming, not like the, the Babylonians. This is an army that's able to leap from mountain to mountain. Verse 6, before their face, the people shall be much pain. It'll scare everybody and hurt everybody. All faces shall gather blackness because they'll be burned. They shall run like a, like mighty men. Um, let me, well, I'll just keep reading. They shall climb the wall like men of war and they shall march everyone on his ways and they shall not break their ranks. They're not gonna be um, stopped. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. All right, so we're not dealing with a normal army. We're dealing with us. This is the sake come to Christ and we're the army behind Jesus. Verse nine. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a, didn't Jesus always say like a thief, like a thief, like a thief, I'm coming back. Verse 10, the earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining and the Lord shall utter his voice. You know what's last out of all of those disasters? I mean, an army that wipes out everything. Uh, earthquakes and the sun going dark, the moon going dark and, and blood red. The worst is when God speaks from heaven and it says, he shall utter his voice ahead of his army, before his army, for his camp is very great. For he, the Lord, is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? Now. Um, Go down to verse, uh, oh, we could go on to verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even unto me with all your, what's that word turn? That's repent. We're gonna see repentance here explained in just a few minutes, but I want you to turn back to God with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. This is not a normal church service. This is where you need to get right with God, verse 13. And rend your heart, break your heart and not your garments and turn to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil who knoweth if he will return and repent himself and leave a blessing behind him even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God who knows well did you notice out of all of that did you notice all those warnings It's not a good day, the day of the Lord. It's a day of absolute destruction, a day of darkness and gloominess that expands the globe, clouds across the globe. Remember, what does Jesus say? He says, in clouds. So that we think, well, okay, so that means Ireland's gonna see him first because we have mainly clouds. But no, I believe during the tribulation, there'll be so much, they worry about CO2. Our scientists and our, our politicians have no idea what they're trying to do to save the planet. Um, that's just a bird. Don't worry about him. Um, the, uh, uh, what's coming is going to be so much destruction, so much smoke, so much vapor. The clouds are going to be thick and dark, and then Jesus splits them. Joel uh, describes a mighty army that has never been seen before. There are earthquakes raging around the world. The sun and the moon go dark for a while. The stars withdraw. They're shining. The Lord speaks from heaven and shakes this world to its core. And then he asks, Who's going to be able to stand? Who will abide this day? Who's going to be able to survive it? What is Joel describing? Armageddon. When Jesus comes back the second time. Now, none of this has happened yet. We have earthquakes, but not like this is going to happen. But it will soon. Jump down to verse 28. <clears throat> Verse 28, still in chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward, now this is after the Messiah comes, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and young men shall see visions. Also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. It's kind of interesting. Look there in verse 31, or verse uh, 31, yeah, uh, verse 32, sorry. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, can you finish it, shall be delivered in the New Testament, shall be saved. Peter quotes that. He says, you know what? There's still a chance to be saved. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Aren't those amazing things? They are not going to talk about that on the evening news. They're not going to warn about it uh, on Saturday morning cartoons. Church, Christians, our responsibility is to warn this world that that day is still coming. That's what motivates us. What's the love of Christ that motivates It sure does. But I love people who are lost and they have no idea what's coming. So Peter stands up there and he warns them and he says, that day is almost here. Go back to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. It's kind of interesting to get the context when Peter quotes from Joel. Until you go to Joel and you read it, you, you never realize just how, how, um, how gripping these few words from Peter were on that crowd. Peter makes two great promises there in verse 17. Acts 2, 17, it shall come to pass. And he quotes from, look at verse 16. I'll start it there again. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass. Here's the first great promise. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. What does he say just happened that morning? God poured out his spirit and they were able to prove that they were filled with the spirit by being able to speak with various languages. So um, uh, the pouring out of God's spirit was a big deal. But then there's a second big deal. Run down and look down at verse 21. And it shall come, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those are two great promises that come out of the day of Pentecost. Because something was coming. Something that was serious enough for Peter to say, you got to get saved. And it wasn't just death. I don't like anybody's funeral. I don't want to go to anybody's funeral. But death comes, doesn't it? But that's not what we warn mainly of. We warn that there, it is appointed a men once to die, and after this, the judgment. So Peter's up there warning them, but he's also given them a promise. You can have the same Holy Spirit that we just got. And you could be saved from the coming judgment. What is Peter's point? Um, oh, I just said the pouring out of God's spirit. Just, uh, just before the day of the Lord comes and the saving of a believing remnant just before that day. Now, what was Peter's point? Well, the day of the Lord is very near. He actually calls it at hand. When something's within reach, it's right there. And you can, you can grab it, it's that close. You can touch it, you can taste it, smell it. And you know, as a Christian, that's how we're supposed to live. Now you have to plan like it may be 100 years before he comes. I remember when Nita and I got married, she asked, she said, uh, she said, you know, if the Lord comes back, what if our kids are very young? I said, you can't live that way. Go ahead and have as many kids as you want. But live like Jesus is coming back today. You plan, should you buy a house? Yeah. Should you go on a holiday? Yes. But you live, you, you, you love, and you serve like he's coming back today. Does that make sense? So yes, we make all the plans, but the day of the Lord is coming, and I believe it's even sooner than we think. I have been freaked out over the last two years of just how fast this world and its system came in line with the Bible. I never knew how people would line up and allow themselves to be implanted with the chip. They would line up and do whatever some scientist says. They don't care. Oh, they say it's safe. Good, maybe it is. I don't know, but a whole world lining up. Never thought I would see it in my lifetime. I thought there'd be rebels, especially in Ireland, especially in court going, ain't gonna do it. But they're not there. <laughs> it's weird. They queue up, oh, the day of the Lord is coming. And Peter's point is, people have, now this is this is going to get crazy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change gears now. Peter, when he says that, he's saying people have one chance to escape. You ready? They've got to call on the Savior. But the truth is, they murdered the Savior. That's what chapter 2 is about. He's now going to announce, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Messiah shall be saved. And by the way, you killed him. (laughs) Now you understand how they are trembling, how when Peter says, save yourselves, it's time to get saved, 3,000 of them responded because they knew how serious it was what they had done to Jesus. And Peter takes some time to expose the blood on their hands. In verse 22, keep reading. You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Now just stop there for a second and realize this, he begins to describe slowly, just a brief thing. They knew Jesus and he says, let me, let me remind you of this Jesus. He was approved of God. Everything he did, there was nothing he couldn't do. Was there anybody who couldn't he couldn't raise from the dead? Was there anybody he couldn't restore back to health? No. It proved that God was behind him. He said, This Jesus is well known by you. He lived right among you. They all knew who Peter was talking about. It's amazing, even to this day, if you mention Jesus, most people know who you're talking about. Now, I've been to Mexico, and half the guys are named Jesus. (laughs) But in Europe and in America, Jesus is still one of those names that's kind of special, right? They knew who Jesus was. And yet, he says, you took him, and you crucified him, you murdered him. Look in verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel, not of Pilate, not of Herod, but by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of who? Of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified his son. God determined to come down, step down, give himself as a son. He walked right into our world and gave himself to you. And what did you do with him? He gave himself as a gift and you murdered him. You took him with wicked hands. You slew him. Think about that for a minute. It, it, it when he said that and they realized, I mean, what was the one thing that the Jews wanted more than anything for Jesus to die? They wanted him. They liked his miracles, but they didn't like the fact that he was so unpopular. Even though Jesus would go into a village and he would heal people, the general consensus was he's a bad man. he's He's filled with Beelzebub. remember? There was a culture that was against him. And when the Pharisees gathered around the the people that um, stood in in Pilate's courtyard and Jesus up there after being beaten several times through the night, and he's standing up there bleeding, and he's got a crown of thorns on his head, and he's got a purple robe that is smudged and bloody. And Pilate says, again, I tell you what, I want to offer you, you can have Barabbas, he's a murderer, and you can have Jesus. Which do you want? And they all cried out, give us Barabbas. What a thing. And Pilate said, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And what did the Pharisees run around telling everybody to say? Crucify him. And everybody went, oh, yeah, 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 crucify him. What a thing. It didn't matter that he had healed and fed and blessed and helped and loved and touched and cared for and ministered to probably everyone in that crowd. In the end, kill him. That's the human heart. That's the human condition. He said, you murdered him. You know, when you say words like that to somebody, it makes you realize that I'm guilty. I'm guilty of crucifying the son of God. I've read that people say, well, the Jews murdered Jesus. No, I did politics got involved in religion and it ended up in the murder of a good man no sin brings forth death and jesus stepped down from his throne in heaven and laid his hands out on that cross and willingly died for my sin it was my sin that put him there we murdered him it was my hands that nailed his hands to that cross and my hands that took that whip and lashed. You say, well, we're different. If we had been alive that day, we would have been no different. When you see that you're part of what killed the Son of God, all of a sudden you realize how much in trouble you are with God. Thankfully, death was not the end, amen? Aren't you glad for stories that actually have happy happy endings? Not like Disney, (laughs) but like the Bible. Look at verse 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death. I like that. He Broke the chains of death because it was not possible that Jesus should be holden of death. Verse, uh, uh, God resurrected Jesus. It's not even possible for Jesus to stay dead because he is the source of life. That's awesome. Realize you got a problem? He can fix it because he even went to death and came back. Even King David predicted the resurrection of Messiah, picking up in verse 25, for David, speaketh concerning him, speaketh concerning the Messiah, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Wait a minute. I saw the Messiah, the Lord, not Jehovah God, but the Lord, my Lord, the Messiah, I saw him always there. So he's gonna actually describe now he's gonna die, but he says, but he, he can't stay dead because I always see him. Keep going. Verse 26, therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh, my flesh shall rest in hope. He says, I can accept death now because thou will not leave my soul in hell. This is, this is a quote from Psalm 16, but it refers not just to David. Watch this. Neither wilt thou suffer, ah, thy holy one to see corruption. Thy holy one is a messiah. Thou hast made me to know the ways of life. Now thou shall make me full of joy with one day thy very conscience, I'm going to, have to see you now. Um, verse uh, verse tw- 31. No, let me keep going to 28, yeah, down to verse 31. He, this is David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. What did David see that thrilled him? Well, he saw a future where the Messiah is at the right hand of the Father, but he sees that that Messiah has to die, but he doesn't stay dead. His flesh doesn't decay and doesn't see corruption. And he says, I saw the Lord back alive again. And in verse 31, uh, I'm sorry, um, I want to, which one? Um, yes, verse 26, back in verse 26. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was clad, moreover, my flesh. What do we, You ever hear somebody say, let me he rest in peace? You ever hear that? What David said, you know, as a Christian, as a believer, I know that when I die, I know I'll be at peace. You don't have to pray for me. You don't have to do penance for me. You don't have to pay the priest for me. Because? Christ died and was buried and rose again, I too will go through the same process. I too can rest in peace. Peter says we have even verse 32, we have seen Jesus alive. This Jesus hath God raised up wherefore, whereof we all are witnesses. We have uh, we are valid witnesses that can prove that he's alive. We not only saw him we handled him. We ate with him. We talked with him. We, he spoke with us. He walked with us. He is alive and well. I like how Buddy Blunkall used to say, people say, Jesus isn't, isn't alive. Well, I talked with him this morning. <laughs> That's more profound than you know, folks. The resurrection proved that he was a Messiah. And he goes on in verse 33. Therefore, being now, where is he? By the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this gift, this this miracle, which he now see and hear. Guess where Jesus is? He's sitting right now at the right hand of the Father. That means he's co-equal with God. Nobody can just sit next to God except Jesus. Isn't that cool? The Man Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, God became flesh, and now is, co- is is shown to be co-equal with God. I like how he says there, we got the promise, and that word promise is such a good word. He keeps reminding them of, still there in verse thirty-three. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having he having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, which he personally shed forth poured forth this gift which he now see and hear what we're doing is impossible for some dumb Galilean I say that respectfully don't misunderstand what I'm saying this guy who never went to school now speaking three different languages perfectly with a Galilean lisp is a miracle because they were filled with the spirit and that proves that Jesus is both Lord and Christ verse 36 therefore Let all the house of Israel right here know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now Christ is the Greek word, the New Testament word for Messiah. It's the same thing. Now you'd say, wow, that must have been a great message. They must have all gotten happy. No, 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 no. That did not thrill that crowd. It has cut them. To the heart. Look at verse thirty-seven. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. Prick is a is a is a um, a goad. It's a sharp pointed stick that that pierces. It says now they were pricked in their hearts. and they became worried about their souls. Look what it says. And and they like all in one. They all said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren. What are we gonna do? Um, You know, one of the best things for you to worry about is your soul. Now, once you're saved, you know what you can always sing? It is well with my soul, amen? But before you can sing that song, you better say, what do we do? What do I do? My soul is more important than the value of the entire planet Earth. If you could weigh all the gold, all the platinum, all the uh, the silver, if you could weigh all the businesses and the money that's made and the internet and um, uh, uh, um, digital coins, like anything, Bitcoin and all that, you could add it all up. It still doesn't measure up to the value of one soul, your soul. So, well, you know, there's some people who are more important than me, maybe in your eyes, but not in God's eyes. They became quite worried, not about Israel, not about them, their, their families, not about their health, not about their bank accounts. They worried about their soul. And they said, men and brethren, what are we going to do? We are guilty. Hallelujah. <laughs> Best thing that ever happened in church service for somebody to go, he's right, I'm guilty, I'm wrong. These men realized just how much trouble they were in with God. And they dared to ask, Is there anything we can do? And Peter gives them a good answer, verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are far off, that means us, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Verse 40 says, and with many other words, did he testify and exhort, urge them, plead with them, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. So Peter said two things. God expects of, of devout people who think they're good, who murdered Christ. God expects repentance. You know, John the Baptist softened them up. That's all he preached was repent, repent, repent. Now here's Peter saying, repent, because it is the foundation of the Christian life. You don't get saved unless you're willing to go low and humble yourself. And it's followed by believers, baptism in water. But I got to answer the first question. What is repentance? Because people think that, I mean, some of the new Bibles, especially the Catholic Bibles, substitute repent and they put do penance in there. And that's nowhere to be found in your Bible. Penance is what you do. Repentance is an attitude of surrender. You can't do anything, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Let me just show you a simple illustration here for a second. You've got, I like the Joe soap. Maybe this is Sean soap. I don't know. There's Sean and, He's kind of attracted to his sins. He's likes. he got his own set of ways of living, his habits. He likes the world. And that's his direction. That's how his life is lived. He just goes with the flow, just follows everybody, not knowing that it's leading to the judgment of God, not knowing that it's leading to the wages of sin being death, not knowing that there is a hell that never ends when he just lives his own way. All we like sheep have gone our own way, man. But repentance comes along and turns and says, you know what? I don't want to go that way anymore. The greatest revelation I ever had was I didn't have to go to hell. Greatest truth I ever found in the Bible was there's a way out. So I changed my mind. I actually changed my focus to a moment to where not just where I'm standing, but to where I crumble. Repentance is not. Oh, I think I'll change my mind. I was going to have Cadbury's. Now I'm going to have... No, 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 That's not repentance. It's where you, one way, were going very confidently, full of yourself, and the next day you're broken on the on your face and you're crying out, God, is there another way? And you find out there is. You're crying out to the God who loved you and gave himself for you. And that simple change of heart, that thing where you decide, I don't want to go to hell, Lord, can you save a wretch like me? That's repentance. It's not complicated, is it? But oh, how important it is. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Always has been that serious and always will be. And when a person can finally decide I'm going to turn away from, not stop doing, he didn't stop sinning. What did he do? He changed his focus. He said, I'm tired of watching stuff. I'm tired of hanging around with the wrong crowd. I'm tired of just always ending up under the table, on the floor, in the toilet. I'm tired of everybody abusing my stupidity. I just want to know, God, is there any hope? And when you turn to God, that's repentance. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, you know where Paul went everywhere. Preaching what some people would call a simultaneous act of faith. Watch this. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. What did he tell everybody? Testifying both, doesn't matter who they were, Jews and also to the Greeks. He said two things. You need to repent towards God own up to the fact you need to turn back to God, turn to God, knowing you're a sinner, and you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that'll do? That'll save anybody. You cannot just believe without repenting. Say, say, would you just believe Jesus died for you? Yeah, I believe. Would you believe that Jesus was buried and rose again? Yeah, I believe. You're saved. No, you're not. That, that you have just secured their security in their own sin. A person, when they come, even, you know what the Bible says? Even the devils believe. It takes repentance. It takes where you break, man. I don't know how to say. When, 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 um, uh, when my kids would be doing something wrong and I say, say, you're sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> they weren't sorry. They just had dad around who's going to kill them if they didn't say they're sorry. And if I wasn't there, they would never have said they're sorry, right? Repentance is the foundation of salvation because it's a broken heart. It's the soil of your heart that's broken up. So the Son of God can come in and save you. It's called a U-turn. Go in one direction and you say, I don't want to go that direction anymore. I turn it around and wherever this takes me, isn't that amazing? Wherever God will take me, I take him. That's repentance. And you know, repentance is a thing you need to do after you're saved, a lot. It is the the the, the, uh, the foundation of the Christian life as much as it's the foundation of salvation. It's what allows us when we come to church to say, if the pastor says it from the book and if the book says I need to do it and I'm not, then I change my mind, I'm going to do it. Does that make sense? And then you go get baptized. He says, Back there in Acts chapter two, baptized in the name of the Lord and of the very Messiah, not in the name of Moses. They would have gladly been baptized in Moses' name or in the name of Abraham. been baptized in the name of Peter, James, John, Mary, or anyone else. You get baptized, and I'll talk more about baptism next week, but all in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. There in Acts chapter two, look at verse 39. For the promise, Peter promises two things will happen. The promise is unto you and to your children, to all who are afar off, even as many as our Lord shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, "Save yourselves from this untoward generation." So Peter promises two things in verse thirty-nine: all your sins are going to be remitted. Remission is a is a now it's become a. Medical term, your cancer is in remission. It simply means removed, forgiven, erased. How? By the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in your place. The one you murdered died for your sin. That murdered him. And if you'll accept the fact that you're guilty, then you can accept the gift that he gives to save the one who murdered him. (laughs) Is that not brilliant? I I could not have dreamed. Nobody could have imagined, how do you save people who kill you? And yet Jesus on the cross cried out with that dying breath, pulling himself up on the back of that cross, and he cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't realize they're killing their only hope, but that's okay. I forgive them, will you? Isn't that awesome? Peter promises, if you'll repent, believe. All your sins will be remitted, and you too shall receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't need the gift of tongues. You one you got, but you'll have the presence of God Almighty with you always. You'll have the power to do whatever God asks you to do. You'll have the peace of God. You'll have comfort of the Scriptures, comfort of the Holy Ghost. That's the gift. Did you notice what was not in there, in that Things that in that what uh, Peter asked, he didn't say, All right, be quick, be quick to do penance, find yourself a confession booth, start doing good works and sacraments, make sure you get into Holy Communion, and take a pilgrimage or two, start doing some prayers to Mary, and go join a church, and get your babies baptized and confirmed, and join holy orders. Did you know none of that means anything to God? None of that means anything. Anything to God at all, only what Jesus did got God's attention. There is nothing that Bill Gates, Soros, Jeff Bezos, um, uh, uh, Elon Musk, nothing they do catches God's attention. God doesn't go, ooh, there goes another rocket. Hey, let's watch Elon's next rocket launch. That doesn't strike God's attention. You know what struck God's attention? His son. So next time somebody says, well, I'm trying my best. I'm I'm in church and uh, I I do a pilgrimage every 10 years and I've uh, been baptized and catechized and homogenized and all this stuff, you say, God hadn't noticed any of that. The only thing that God noticed was Jesus Christ. You better ask him to save you. And a quick note about baptism is this. It is a picture of salvation and a story. That's all it is. It never washes away sin. It Only Jesus... Washes away sin. Talk about that more next week. And I'll just, this is the best part, verse 40. With many other words, he went on probably for an hour or two. He didn't just stop with those words, but with many other words, did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. What is he saying? He's saying, Do you want to remain? Part of the generation. You want to be known as the generation that murdered the Messiah. He asked them to save themselves from an ungodly generation of murdering Jews. If I were, I was 17 when I was saved. And my generation, I didn't hang around with a lot of bad guys. So I can't talk about my generation. But if I was 17 today, I would guarantee your generation is wicked. And if you want to be known as part of this ungodly, wicked generation that mocks God, mocks Jesus, mocks anything that's good. When was the last time you watched a cartoon or an adult cartoon? How, how they make adult cartoons for adults. or are not even adults, they're babies. But when was the last time you saw one that didn't mock anything good? Do you want to grow up and be known as part of an ungodly, wicked generation? Or do you finally want to step out and start following Jesus Christ? That's what he asked those thousands of people outside that balcony of that upper room. Why don't you save yourself from such a ruin as those people are headed for and become the generation that is known for repenting of their sin and calling on the name of Jesus to save them. And then go out and turn this world upside down. That's what we need as a generation who'll do that. Amen. Question Do you think anyone responded? I'm kind of already announced. Look at verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word, stop there for a second, realize there were some that madly rejected his word. <laughs> there were some who got angry, but there were some who gladly received his word. They believed and they were baptized, in the same day they joined with them about 3,000 souls. Wow. That's a pretty good start for a church, amen? That's pretty amazing for such a hard message. You're guilty. One escape. And the only escape you got is the one that you killed, but he didn't stay dead. He's waiting for you to call on him to save you now. 3,000 responded. How many respond today? That's why it's okay to bring people to church. Because you may be saved, but they may just hear just what they need so that they respond and go, you mean there's hope for me? The day of the Lord is no joke. It's coming, and I believe it's very, very, very soon. If you've not been saved or born again, you are in just as much trouble as those men were. Your sins, my sins put Jesus on the cross. And if you want to stay part of the generation that just keeps pouring contempt on the cross, it's your business. But if you want to get out and go up and miss the judgment of God and be saved and walk in the spirit and live free of addiction. How many of your friends, when I was 17, the year that I got saved in, in my high school, two of them, two we went to two different funerals, 17-year-olds, who had just gotten their driver's license, and what were they doing? One hand on the wheel and another on, a, on cans of beer, and they're drinking and driving, and both of them wrapped their cars around uh, trees and died in an instant, off into eternity. When somebody says, where are you going when you die? I didn't think that I could ever know. And he says, you can know. Let me show you. <laughs> and that's what I tried to do this morning, just like Peter did. We're all in the Bible. You want to remain part of this generation? Are you ready to repent? Let's stand. Let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you gave the ultimate gift. You gave your son. Mary's not mentioned. The church is not mentioned. <clears throat> Our best efforts aren't needed. Guilty men and women stood in that crowd and realized they had no hope unless they called on the name of Jesus Christ. But they had to believe that He was alive, and they had to know that they knew that they knew that He wanted to save them, and that was the whole purpose of the cross. It wasn't it wasn't a final act. <clears throat> It was saving grace. It was the gift of God. And those men needed to see a miracle in the lives of those fishermen and carpenters to be able to say, that's what I want. I want to know what it means to be forgiven. Well, 2,000 years later, here we are in this crowd and people watching on the internet. There's somebody, I'm sure, there's somebody who's saying, I always struggled with whether God really would save a wretch like me. I always struggled that maybe I'm not ever good enough. And now I know. Whew. Those guys were pretty bad there back then at Pentecost. It only been 50 days since those same men had cried out for Jesus to be crucified. Here you forgave them. Will you forgive me? Jesus will. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus shall be saved. Would you do that? Dear Christian, would you realize, you know what? I got a good deal. <laughs> My simple childlike faith, I remember I didn't understand anything's going on. I just knew I didn't want to go to hell. And I knew that Jesus wanted to save me, and I remember getting saved, and I, I never want to get over it. I just want to live for Him. Lord, I prayed you just stir our hearts so that we go out of here, Lord, on fire for excited. You know what? I'm living for Jesus. I've decided to follow him all my life because of such a gift he gave to me. In Jesus' name we'll pray, amen.